Hello, and welcome to the DC Insider Employer Update Podcast. This podcast updates you with the expertise and current insight of the Washington, D.C.-based attorneys from the Fortney Scott Law Firm. Each episode highlights the most important issues and analysis that employers need to know in order to understand and react to key federal developments affecting their business. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice on any subject matter. Now let's turn it over to our host, David Fortney. Hi, everyone. David Fortney, and welcome to another edition of the DC Insider What Employers Need to Know podcast. As usual, I'm joined by both Nita. Hey, Nita. Hey, Dave. How are you doing? Good, good. And Bert Fishman, too. Hey, Bert. Hi, David. Nita, good to be back. It is great to be back. And so in today's podcast, we want to review a really significant development. And this we're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking the National Academy of Sciences report addressing compensation. Let me just say just briefly to set this up, the National Academy of Sciences was established a long time ago, back in 1863. It is a private non-government institution, and it is to advise Congress and the agencies on significant matters such as compensation data and what the government should be doing with it. The NAS is comprised of subject matter experts that are actually voted on by their contemporaries, and so it's a merit selection to be on the National Academy of Sciences and to serve. In this instance, the NAS was requested by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commissioner, EEOC, to evaluate its prior efforts at collecting compensation data using the EEO1 form. And all employers will recall that. Very controversial at the time. Well, now on July 28th, the NAS issued its long-awaited report, and we've previewed that and anticipated that in some of our prior podcasts. The report's entitled, Evaluation of Compensation Data Collected Through the EEO-1 Form. Right, not exactly a scintillating, market-driven title, but these are data geeks and scientists and subject matter experts that are reviewing this. The core question that the NAS report addresses is, should the EEOC continue to collect compensation data as it did the first time? The answer is, no, not really. But there's a lot more packed into this nearly 300-page report, very technical, filled with charts, enormous amounts of data. And so to unpack that, we're going to go through the history very briefly, because to understand where we are and where we're going, the history counts here. Then, of course, we're going to spend some time on the highlights of the report. All three of us have been through this detailed report several times and have spent a lot of effort getting ready to discuss this. And then finally, we want to share with you what's going to happen in the future. Now, some of you, this may be directly applicable to you. There may be others in your organization that would benefit from this. So please forward this podcast on to others as appropriate. Let me just say a word about particularly Nita's background. We all know her on this podcast. One of her credentials that we typically don't talk about is that Nita was one of the members of the first National Academy of Sciences effort to study pay data. So this is the second time that the NAS has evaluated pay data. So Nita was one of those subject matter experts on the first NAS report. I also have had the privilege of testifying before the NAS. They collect information from the public. So in this go around, I did provide detailed concern. 
And Bert has been very deeply involved in these matters throughout, both before the EEOC and involving the NAS effort. So this is something that I think we can give you not only what the report says, but a bit of our insider views, having tilled in these fields for quite a few seasons. So I think we should begin at the beginning, as they say. And Nita, I'm going to ask you, you were on the first NAS report. Briefly walk us through the history of where we are and how we got to where we are today and how this report came to be. Well, David, I'd be happy to do that. So let's first start with as something that comes up in the most recent report more than once, and we all listened to the NAS panel discuss this as well. The original EEO-1, which employers who have 100 or more employees file every year with lists of their employees by race, gender, ethnicity, and by EEO job categories, was first put into place in 1966. Think about that, 1966. And it was done on paper. So kind of keep that in mind. So let's fast forward. So that report has been done by employers for years and years and years, including federal contractors who have 50 or more employees. In 2010, President Obama put together a National Equal Pay Enforcement Task Force that basically directed EEOC to go to the National Academy, put together a panel of experts, and tell them how they should collect data. Now, they made it pretty clear when they went to the National Academy or the NES, as we call them, that they were interested in finding a way to attach the pay data to the EEO-1 report. And so they brought that to the panel and the panel issued a report in 2012. And in 2012, the panel basically said to EEOC, one, you need to decide what you're going to use the data for. That needs to be your first and most important step, because we can't tell until we know what you want to do, use the data for, we can't tell you whether or not adding it to the EEO-1 is a good idea. Then once you decide, and by this they meant EEOC, OFCCP, and Justice Civil Rights Division were all involved in this discussion. Once they did that, the panel told the group that what they should then do is do a pilot study. And I think, David, that's an important point that they said, whatever you decide you want to do, do a pilot study. So this was 2012. Fast forward to 2016. In 2016, the president of the United States, Barack Obama, had a press conference, an unprecedented, I think, David, we all felt at the time, press conference to announce that we are adding pay data collection to the EEO-1. And as a member of the first panel, I went, WTF? Really? We told you no. That was a bad idea. So anyway, they went ahead and did it. David testified on behalf of the Institute for Workplace Equality. Uh, We put in comments. Bert and I both put in comments. I did it for the Institute. Bert did it for a consortium. And they looked at us and said, no, I don't think so. We're going to collect. And this is what they eventually did. The EEO-1 component two, which was pay collection, was you collect for every employee in addition to race, gender, and so forth. By job categories, you collect 12 pay bands of data, and you collect the W-2 box one and hours worked. We kept saying, why not annualize pay? They didn't go there. So you might remember that in 2016, there was an election. And in that election, 
the Democrats did not win. So the pay data collection was supposed to occur in 2018. In the summer of 2017, OMB stopped the pay data collection. They suspended it. They sent it back to EEOC and say, this is a bad idea. Let's reconsider. A number of women's groups sued over that stoppage. And eventually in 2019, they won. And the court ordered the EEOC in 2019, within a few months, to collect all the pay data from 2017 and 2018 that they had not collected. After that decision came down, the EEOC, which under the Trump administration said, we are not going to collect data on component two anymore. We're just going to collect component one data, basically the the race gender. So they collected all that data. And in 2020, the chair of the EEOC, Janet Dillon, asked the NAS to do two things. One, evaluate all this data we collected, because I think it's important to understand that under the court order, they collected 90% of what they normally expect. So they had a pretty good amount of data to look at. And also tell us whether this was a good idea. Is this data that's going to help us do our job from a to know whether there's pay data by race or gender, what the pay gap issues are, and also help us with our enforcement? And so that brings us, that was in 2020. They were supposed to issue the report in December of 2021. They issued it, as David pointed out, on July 28th of 2022. And as we unpack it, I think David and Bert, people will understand why it took them so long to do this. Nita, thanks for really walking us through a tortured history. And that is an excellent and succinct because there's a lot of additional twists and turns underlying that. But those are the highlights. So we come with the agency having collected data. It's very controversial. Many people listening to this podcast have suffered through that data collection and understand what the burdens are. And of course, one of our central themes to really break it down was garbage in, garbage out. I mean, with the data you're collecting are not the right data. It's not what employers use to assess their own compliance. And it's not going to be useful for anyone, the government or anyone else. The NAS report, I'll call it 2.0, the 2022 report, largely, if I can say so, agrees with the concerns and the shortcomings that we have identified, we and other representatives of the employer community. The core finding by the report is that the component two, that's what Nita described that was collected using the EO1 form, quote, is not well suited to measure pay equity by EEOC or by employers, close quote. The panel goes on and notes that the issues could be addressed, could be addressed by adopting well-established, improved data collection methods that are used by other federal agencies. So against that backdrop, that's kind of the overarching, but there's a huge amount of detail. Remember, it's a 300-page report that has lots of tables and charts and appendices and, and everything you can imagine data geeks comprise, with all due respect, but they are real subject matter experts, but they're data geeks. They identified themselves as data geeks in their own press conference, which I thought was kind of cute. So, Bert, let me ask you, can you give us some of the highlight reel? You've been through this report multiple times. As I said, you've been in these fields a lot, many times over. What do we have this time around? Well, there are a number of ways to approach it. I'll leave some of the data issues for Nita to cover. But the initial findings of the NAS are pretty 
critical. In one sense, if you read the whole report, you kind of have never seen so many smart people looking for something nice to say when they know they don't really have much nice to say. So to start with the most important, there is no recommendation to reinstate the component to procedures, process, or format. In fact, just the opposite. There's a strong recommendation not to do it again in this form, in this way. There's a unanimous view of the panel to redesign the entire EEOC data collection process. Then the panel gives extremely detailed options and recommendations on how to design an effective data collection tool. And here's where the realities of their political situation tug against the good sense of their scientific conclusions. The panel knows that if the EEOC undertook to follow the recommendations of the NAS panel, it would take years. And during that time, of course, the EEOC would not be collecting pay data, compensation data, which is exactly contrary to the will of the agency. So they then suggest some recommendations that could be done immediately, and I'll just give them briefly and we'll see where they go from here. First, they said to get rid of the W2 box one, which is incomplete, includes a lot of annual variables, and they said, Substitute that for W2 box five, which is somewhat more complete for those data geeks. It's the Medicare compensation. It's what you pay Medicare tax on. California uses it. Some other states use it. It's more complete, but still has incidental and annual variables that may in fact mask the core source of pay differentials. But if you're going to do a quick fix, go to box five, get rid of box one. The next is Although the panel strongly urges and strongly prefers collection of individualized pay data, if you're going to do something on a quick and dirty basis, they propose radically narrowing the pay bands within the EEOC job categories and ultimately eliminate pay bands and move to the standard occupational codes used by the Bureau of Labor Statistics and other people. They also urged the agency to find a way of distinguishing between non-exempt and exempt employees, between part-time and full-time, and only collect data with respect to hours worked on non-exempts, which makes sense since it tracks the FLSA. And finally, frankly, if there was one recommendation from Nita's panel above all of the others was if you before you do anything field test this to see if it works and you might have avoided a lot of the problems that Nita articulated so their last recommendation is if you do these interim measures to try to collect data please field test it first and uh, we will see if the agency wishes to or is able to adopt those recommendations Nita, why don't you tell us a bit about the data issues and other long-term recommendations? Well, you know, as we talked about at the top, as David mentioned, there really were two purposes of this report. The first purpose was to determine with quality, what was the utility, as they say in data geek land, what is the utility of the data that was collected? And they basically did not have anything good to say about the data. They tried to be nice. I think they spent months trying to figure out how to say nice things about the data that really is unusable. 
So here were the top ones, and then we'll talk about the longer term proposals they had. One, it's incomplete data. Only two thirds of the eligible firms were asked to complete the survey. They feel like EEOC is using the same list over and over again and is not going out and getting the firms that are new firms who are required to do that. Even though 90% of the people that were asked actually submitted the data, totally there were only about 68% of the pay data for responding establishments. The coverage was only about 58%. So that's a fairly low percentage. The reliability of the data. There were a lot of extreme errors internally inconsistent. And I think, David and Bert, this is the most damning one. 35% of the pay data was potentially suspect and had to be deleted from their evaluation by the data geeks. And they blame this, to be honest, on what we had said to EEOC in the beginning, that there are design and data issues that affected the analysis. And They said, basically, you cannot use the component two data that they spent so much money to collect, even if it's cleaned, except for certain very limited purposes. You can estimate raw pay gaps at a national level, and it can be used to prioritize, you know, initial EEOC investigations. But it can't be used for some of the other purposes they want, like employer self-audits or direct determinations of bias. So the data they collected, back to David's point, has turned out to be garbage in and garbage out. To be clear, I think that EEOC itself at the time, and I know from the communications we had, both the public and the private communications, Dr. Chris Hafer, who runs their data collection unit and analysis unit, he was deeply troubled by the requirement. He was working under a court order and being mandated by the federal judge to undertake the data collection. He worked mightily hard to try, he anticipated uh, these sorts of shortcomings, but nonetheless, ultimately the agency was required to expend millions of dollars to collect this data, not to mention that the employer community, we spent millions and millions of dollars in responding. And at the end of the day, we have this data collection that is largely of very, very limited value. And that's just not our opinion. That's the National Academy of Sciences opinion. OFCCP itself, when the data first came in, they reviewed it and said, no thanks. They actually issued a public statement saying, this data are not useful. There's no utility, to use their word, to this data for government contractor audits or in compliance. That's a big downside to what the government had hoped to achieve. I just covered some of the short-term recommendations. Nita, I know from inside baseball and your knowledge of the prior NAS report, what are some of the longer-term recommendations, whether they get to them or not, at least let's give the panel its due? Well, I think this is all stuff that an employer would understand from doing their own pay analysis collect employee-level data on education, job experience, tenure. Use the standard occupational classifications. EEO1 job categories is too broad. We would never use that to do a pay analysis for an employer. The other interesting thing is EEOC has the way they collect race and ethnicity. It's different from the standard used across the federal government generally, they're recommending that they allow Hispanics to choose race as well as ethnicity. And then they also went beyond that. They really are saying, you need to rethink EEO-1. 
It was set up in a different time and place. You've got all these other groups of people you're supposed to protect. You should be collecting data on them as well and then combine them. That one of the final issues is they need to have one form. If they're going to do one and two, they need one form. So those are very robust and far-reaching, and I would say largely correct, even if our clients may not agree with every one of those, the basic concept that the government shouldn't just keep using this 1966 model that no longer matches up at all and doesn't result in any useful data. If the government is going to collect pay data, then it needs to be done in a way that's more effective and that the results are more useful for everyone involved. How we get there, what happens next, I mean, let's talk about that because the current chair of the EEOC, Charlotte Burroughs, she's been very public before this report came out, like, oh, yeah, we're going to be collecting more pay data. We just have to get that NAS report in, and then we're good to go. Well, I think because I think many people expected this report to largely put their stamp of approval on what had been done before and to move forward. And indeed, if I can just add, I think that the EOC's initial press release where they tried to take that position is materially misleading and just flat out wrong. This report does not give a green light to the EOC moving forward in that manner. So they're going to have to certainly revamp what they're doing. These are data collection forms. It's not a regulation. It's a data collection form. So they have to consider what the burdens are, the utility. There should be an opportunity for public input on that. That could mean hearings. That could mean a comment period. Comments will be very robust. Most importantly, David, they've got to get their third Democratic commissioner because right now there are three Republicans and two Democrats. That's right. This would require a commission vote. And Bert, what do you see happening on that? Are they going to get a third commissioner? Frankly, there was just a report that the Republican in the Senate have realized that they have significant power over this and that the uh, nomination of the third Democratic EEOC commissioner is moving slowly. It is certainly not fast-tracked, and there may be opposition because of things like this. But on a broader scale, you have to wonder whether the EEOC has the capability or the interest to revamp the EEO-1 report as recommended in light of its membership, in light of its maybe never being able to have the votes to do this. But even more importantly, the EEOC imagines the world since its creation through the prism of job categories. They have stuck to them for you know 50 years. I don't know whether they have the interest in revamping the way they analyze their hiring data in a way that's reasonable for compensation data. And then all on top of this, with the coming uh, midterms, we have a potentially hostile Congress and a skeptical anti-regulatory Supreme Court. When you put all of those together, it seems to me that the early uh, reanimation of pay data collection from the EEOC is problematic at best and probably not going to be seen for a while. But that's just crystal ball. David, I think one last thing we want to mention is they have not addressed confidentiality, burden, or privacy issues, which actually the panel didn't either. They felt there were other agencies that have done this and that it could be done easily. But that is not what employers and employees are going to think about providing their individual pay data to the agency. Correct. 
And that issue and another issue that was not addressed so that employers are aware, higher ed, the whole use of iPad data and the collection of compensation data from higher ed, they're outside of the EEO-1 data collection requirements. They use the so-called iPad form for higher ed. So that whole employer community was outside the scope of these recommendations and remains on a completely separate track. So what's going to happen? We have this report political conflict and policy differences. I think that the EEOC, they may do some level of public hearing. If they get the third vote, they are going to hustle through and try to resuscitate some sort of pay data collection. I think they're going to try to do pay data collection 2.0, as wounded as it may be, if they can get away with it. And I think that the modest change they may make is moving from box one of the W-2 form to box five. But nonetheless, because as a practical matter, as Bert has explained, all those other changes, they can't possibly be done along the timelines that the EEOC, the current EEOC, is hoping to achieve. So does that mean that there could be pay data collection early next year? Possibly, if they do a real hurry-up drill and have a third vote. Maybe it's delayed even further. But I do think during the Biden administration, my prediction is, flawed as it may be, they're going to replay this using box five from the W-2 form. Bert, what do you think? I think you're probably right, because I think that there is enormous pressure from the, the progressive wing of the entire party, which certainly is represented by the agency heads. There's enormous pressure to be shown to do something on pay equity. It's been a central issue of the Biden administration from the beginning, and they're going to do something. Unfortunately, the something that they're going to do is going to look exactly like the troubled collection process uh, we've just been talking about. Nita, I'm going to give you the last word. Well, meanwhile, the states are out there rolling things out. California, Illinois, I would expect more states to roll out pay data collection on their own. I think that's right. So it's kind of murky whether the EEO-1 pay data collection gets reinstated in what form states continue. And by the way, employers that are posting their EEO-1 data and particularly their previously collected EEO-1 pay data, they're under shareholder pressure and other demands, you at least can put a footnote saying that this data really isn't worth much. See the National Academy of Sciences report, but we're posting it <laughs> because the government required it. Well, listen, this is a great discussion, a little longer than usual, but it's one, and we're going to, at Fortney Scott, we are going to do a web webinar a lunch and learn to unpack this a little further on August 17. So please jump in and join that. And there's going to be a lot more developments. And this is a critical issue for anyone involved in compensation data collection. So Bert, Nita, thank you both. As usual, great discussion today. Very substantive and very important. And please, folks, if you haven't subscribed, subscribe to the podcast. We love doing this stuff and we love hearing from you. So thank you, everyone. Talk to you soon. Thanks everyone, we look forward to the next update. For those that would like to connect with any of the lawyers from Fortney Scott, please reach out to them directly by visiting fortneyscott.com. On the website, you can also listen to previous podcast episodes, as well as pick up your copy of the DC Insider Report and sign up for future updates. Thanks so much for listening.